Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you all again today. Um, it's, a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to, um, to come and open up God's Word with you. And don't, uh, don't let me publishing a book fool you. Um, a lot of people think because you can publish a book, that means that you are, you're excellent at the topic. Um, no, I'm just a broken dad. Um, a broken vessel pouring out God's mercy to other broken vessels, hopefully encouraging them along the way. And so uh, let's do that now. Let's uh, turn to God's word. If you would, please take out your Bibles um, and turn to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible and you're looking at this on, uh, on your iPad or your iPhone, or um, if you're one of the other people who have an Android device, uh, unlock it. Um, open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, then the, the text is printed here on the screen. You can just read along. And if you would, please uh, stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. If you are unable to stand, this is a long reading. So if you need to sit down or you need to stay seated, don't worry about it. God knows the intention of your heart. Um, this is a long reading, so uh, we'll, we'll dive in and, and get after it. Uh, pay careful attention to the reading of God's Word. And he being Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered uh, his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. 
I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thus far the reading of God's word, would you pray with me? Lord God, um, just pray as we come and are uh, and consider this parable, consider what it means for us, Lord, that we would just uh, see your grace and your mercy just shining forward again. And Lord, that we would uh, once again fall in love with you, um, feel your embrace. And then Lord, that we would turn and love our neighbors. God, we pray that you would do this uh, in us, uh, liven up our hearts, be with your preacher, he's weak um, and sinful and tired. And Lord, be with him, give him strength. Um, we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Um, the parable of the prodigal son is, a, is an all too f uh, familiar parable. Um, in fact, I would venture to say this is probably one of the most famous uh, pictures um, or parables in the Bible, one of the most famous pictures of a, of a dad in the Bible. Um, it's one of the most radical stories of God's mercy that we read in the Bible. And yet in our familiarity, um, we have become comfortable with it. Uh, we've tried to moralize the parable of the prodigal son. And we've tried to make it about something that the son does or that we do or something like that. Um, so that we can kind of get our arms around it because God's grace is just so insane in this. Um, it's so radical. It changes everything. About three years ago, I picked up a book on the prodigal son, and on the cover, it had a picture of Rembrandt's painting, um, the prodigal son. You can see it here. Now, I have to, uh, after looking this, I have to confess, um, I didn't read the book. <laughs> I got to this picture, and I was stuck. And every time that I would pick up the book, I would just stare at this picture, this painting, um, I couldn't get the image out of my head be, because it confronted me in, in, in every way. Um, it captures the reality of this situation. It was vague enough to, as a painting, to force me to confront my own expectations and my own emotions. Um... And yet it also elicited a response out of me. As I looked at it and I thought to myself, here's the father hugging his, his son. Here's the older brother looking down. Who are these people in the background? The response that it elicited was not expected. Um, I didn't expect to think this way. 
You see, there's a lot of talk going on right now about what it means to be a man. Uh, we run into these things all the time. Um, and it consistently changes. You don't have to think back too far. Um, you had the brawny man, right? Um, and, uh, and that was one picture of masculinity. Um, I don't understand how a guy chopping down a tree relates to a paper towel, but I mean, whatever. Um, but you had the brawny man. Um, you had Mr. Clean with his pirate earring. Um, <laughs> you had the sexual revolution and what it meant to be a man in that time. You have men dressing a certain way, acting a certain way. Right now, um, this idea of what one guy calls the warrior motif is a picture of masculinity. Um, you have things like man buns for hair. Um, in fact, even as I stand here, I'm a rough caricature of manliness, right? I've got my hair nicely done. I've got my beard trimmed in. I just want to let you guys know I went and did that yesterday just for you because um, I look like an orangutan about three days ago. Um, we have these pictures of masculinity. And what's so impressed me about this picture and about the story of the prodigal is that masculinity, the masculinity displayed in this story is such a lovely picture. You see, there's a problem with trying to define masculinity using words. Every time we try to describe a, a piece of masculinity, we can think of something to counter it, right? Um, I have a buddy, Scott Keith, uh, who says this, uh, you may try to define masculinity um, and you'll fail, but you know it when you see it. And here in this story, we see three men, two who were trying to be masculine, and one who actually is. And we read, and as we read, we find these different types of masculinity, but we see this reality that Jesus has freed us from all of these, all of these pictures, all of these expectations of masculinity that have been put on us. He's freed us from having to try to earn our security, earn our place as men. He's freed us. And he's bought for us security and love from our good father so that we can practice gospel masculinity, laying down our lives so that the people around us can flourish we're going to look at this in three ways. First point, three men. Second point, one party. And then the third point, we're going to take a stab at what gospel masculinity looks like. First of all, three men. In this parable, we're given descriptions um, of three men, two of whom are searching for approval, um, the other one who's just living in the approval that he already has. And all three tell us something about who we are, um, men and women. 
and who we as men want to be. First, the younger brother. The younger brother is seeking security. He's seeking fulfillment. He's seeking happiness. He's come to the conclusion that he can't find those things with his father. Um, that living under the rules of the roof of, uh, of his father, that's just not going to work out well. So he wants to strike out on his own. He asks for his inheritance before his father is dead. Now, this is not as big of a deal, him like understanding what his inheritance is. It's not as big of a deal as it sounds to be. Um, in this time, people would, uh, a father would divvy up the inheritance, tell his sons what they were going to get, but they couldn't actually have it until the dad was dead. Um, they had to wait. And yet this son, this son couldn't wait for his dad to die. He looks at his dad and he says, give me my money. In effect, dad, I wish you were dead. He gets his inheritance and he journeys off to a far country. Um, he wants to put both physical and spiritual distance between him and his father. And this is no small thing. You see, there's no indication that his home was a bad home. In fact, as we look at it um, and as we read about the father's character, we can assume that that holds true to his life. This father was a kind, generous man. And yet this son couldn't wait to get out. He goes off to this far country to chase after things that he thought would bring him joy and happiness. The younger brother, having all that he needs at home, leaves, takes his inheritance, and spends it on wine and women. Um, he chases after those things that he thinks will bring him joy, that will give him self-worth, that will bring him satisfaction. In a sense, he tries to find salvation through those things. And it's in that, in that part of the younger brother, that we all find a piece of ourselves. The part of us that looks everywhere. That looks everywhere but to the loving hands of our good father for what we need, what we think we need. Henry Nowen says this. When I forget that voice of the first unconditional love, then these innocent suggestions can easily start dominating my life and pull me into the distant country. Anger, resentment, jealousy, desire for revenge, lust, greed, antagonisms, and rivalries are the obvious signs that I've left home. Without realizing it, I find myself brooding about someone else's success, my own loneliness, and the way the world abuses me. Despite my conscious intentions, I often catch myself daydreaming about becoming rich, powerful, and very famous. 
The second man we're going to look at is the elder brother. Um, This is the character that we really know least about because we hear the least from him. Um, He appears at the end of the parable. And and all we hear is his frustration. (laughs) His frustration and his disgust with his father. Um, He too has grown up in this loving household. He too has been the beneficiary of his father's care and love, of his father's forgiveness. But notice, he thought he was earning his safety. He thought he was earning his security. In a sense, he thought he was earning his salvation by rule-keeping, by keeping all the ducks in a row. Perfect, straight line. As opposed to his brother who went for wine and women, the older brother looks to obedience in order to earn his way into his inheritance. And it's in this place that we begin to see a part of ourselves again. When we obey... And yet we look at our enemies and they have it easy when our lives are filled with suffering. We can look at our obedience and say, God, haven't I served you these many years? I haven't even, I haven't even received a young goat. Which by the way, young goat is pretty good to eat, but um, I haven't even received a young goat let alone the fatted calf. Where's mine, God? When we look to our own orderliness and obedience as the catalyst of our fulfillment, we become the elder brother. But there's a third man A man who's settled in who he is. He's a man who's not concerned with how he looks to his peers. He's consumed with love for his sons, and yet he doesn't look to his son's obedience to fill up what he feels he may lack. He's filled with wisdom. And in his wisdom, he gives the younger brother what he wanted even though he knew it would lead to his ruin. He gives the younger brother what he knew what he want or what he knew he wanted. So that he would taste the bitterness of his foolish ways. And then when the son comes back, he doesn't say, Oh no, stay out there, son. You're right. You do deserve to be one of my servants. No, he throws a party. And then as he's partying, as he's living in this life with his son, he recognizes that the elder brother isn't here. You see, he has the wisdom, the relational wisdom. He knew that his elder son would struggle with the father's conception of what makes a man worthy. And so the father tells him that he always has all of his love and he's always had all of his possessions. And he invites him in too. So what is this party? Second point, one party. A good friend of mine, um, a dear sister, um, she's probably one of the smartest human beings that I know. 
um, super intelligent. Uh, she was finishing her PhD program at UCSD when she came to Christ. Uh, at that time, I was her pastor. Um, still, we're still good friends to this day. I was just at her wedding a couple weekends ago. Um, she came to faith in Christ, and I can remember the day that she was baptized. Uh, it was phenomenal. Um, and you know what we did? We all left church, um, and we went to my buddy Ko's house, and we had a party. We had a salvation party. Um, we ate great food. We drank great wine. We had a, even, even had a birthday cake for her. You see, this is the closest thing that I've ever seen to the party that we read of here. The younger son squanders all his inheritance and comes to the end of himself. He's run his course. He's burned out. He's strung out. Left to fend for himself among the pigs. He's reached the bottom of the barrel and has found that the things he thought would bring him joy and pleasure and salvation actually ended up destroying him. So he comes to his senses and he goes home. He remembers his father's kindness, the security of his home, and he heads that way. And as he goes, he practices his confession. I love this. Uh, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I don't know if you've ever done this or not, um, when you've messed up, if you've ever like practiced your mea culpa as you're walking um, there, you know? And this is a pretty good one, right? Father, I've sinned against God and against you. Check. Um, no longer worthy to be your son. Check. Um, treat me as a hired servant. Let me get something out of this, right? Bring me back in. You think, you practice, so you get it just right. You try and flower it up, and you bring it to your father. And notice what the father does in this story. He does things that are so unexpected. They're up here. Um, first, he's watching for his son who wished him dead. Now, my son uh, yesterday just went down uh, to the store, uh, to Walmart, and um, he and his cousin were down. There's nothing nefarious going on. But, you know, as a dad, I'm like, eh, um, I got to check. They'd been gone for about five minutes too long. My spidey senses went off. I pulled out my iPhone and I hit find my iPhone. And I saw they were walking home, right? But imagine this. The father in this story, he didn't have GPS, there was no text message telling his dad, hey, dad, I'm on my way home. I want to talk. There was no wire sent ahead, no telegram, no letter, no email, no nothing. No post to tell that he was on his way home. No, the father is sitting. He's watching. He's just waiting. And then he sees his son far off and he runs. He runs. Now, it's weird for a man to run today. And quite frankly, if you saw me run, that would be kind of awkward. Um, 
But in that day, it was shameful for a man to run. The father hikes up his cloak so he can get his legs free. And he runs towards his son. I mean, he's out of control. And when he arrives, he kisses his son. And his son starts to spit out his confession. Father, forgive me. I've sinned against God and against you. And notice the loving father listens, but he listens up to a point. If he's even listening at all. He embraces him. He hugs him. And then he gives him his most prized possessions. He tells his servants, get the best robe we have to cover his stinking, stained, ripped clothes. He takes off his ring and he gives him his ring. It might not seem like that big of a detail. But a ring in that time, I mean, they didn't have debit cards, right? Um, A ring in that time was access to the father's fortune. He gives his son access to the fortune, to his recently recovering son. And then he gives him shoes. He provides for his needs. You see, but this is not far enough for the dad. The dad's not done yet. I mean, it's like, if that wasn't enough, the dad's like, ah, hold on. I got a couple more things here. He then brings out the fatted calf. This this animal that was plumped up so that when you ate it, it tasted great. And he throws a party. He celebrates. And while I don't think the calf is a reference to Christ, I do think that this draws our mind to the everlasting party that's been won for us at the expense of Christ. You see, this feast and its fatted calf are set against the reality that just the night before, he couldn't even find pig slop to eat. His brother, angry, full of pride and self-righteous indignation, comes in and the father invites him in. And you know what's amazing here? We have no idea what happens next. We have no conception, doesn't tell us. We don't know if the elder brother went in. Um, We don't know if he stayed out in the field. We don't know if the younger brother stayed on the wagon or if he fell off again. We don't know. You see, here's the beauty, brothers and sisters, people of God, dads who are here. The reality of God's forgiveness is for you. This is a picture. (laughs) This is a picture of the way that God, the way that God sees you through the work of Christ. 
and invites you and brings you into his party. And you see, it's this immense display of gospel masculinity that confronts our ideas of mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. Last point, gospel masculinity. So what does this mean for us men today? In the Father, we see a picture of manliness that challenges our understanding of masculinity. In the Father, we see wisdom and grace. We see mercy and forgiveness. And we see a willingness to move towards his son against all conventional odds. You see, the Father shows us that manliness isn't about domination. Manly, manliness isn't about sexual conquest. Manliness isn't about drunkenness, riches, fun, games. It's not about those things. He displays the reality that manliness isn't about perfection. It isn't about obedience. It isn't about extracting a confession and then ensuring that the confession is real. That's not what manliness is about. It isn't about, um, it isn't about us getting our pound of flesh. You see, um, manliness isn't about being men, being fathers, being your wife, just with bigger muscles. That's not what manliness is about. Instead, Gospel masculinity is about the ability to create magical gospel parties. Let me explain this and then illustrate. Manliness does the unexpected in the face of worldly wisdom. Notice, instead of meeting either of his sons with anger or frustration... Um, at their disrespect of him, the father recognizes the younger brother's brokenness and his desire for forgiveness before his son can even fin finish his speech. And the father forgives him and he uses his power and position to create a magical gospel party. This party's not based on the ability of the father or the strength of the son's confession. It's based on the work of another. And you see, while we don't read anything in here that expressly leads us to Christ, the beauty is that in this passage, the person who accomplished it all is the person telling the story. He's the person who's saying, look, this is about me. You see, he was the pure younger brother. He was the pure one on our place, in our place, who always did his father's will. And he's the better elder brother who doesn't so, sit in self-righteous condemnation of his younger brother. He's the good elder brother who comes and dies for us, searching us out. You see, the power of gospel masculinity is found in the one good man. And the picture of gospel masculinity 
It isn't described by conquest or dominion. It's a picture of a bloody, naked man hung to a cross, dying so that we could live. Gospel men move in grace and mercy to see those around them thrive. Gospel masculinity <laughs> is shown here in this picture in what Henry Nowen calls the eternal embrace, the picture of the father holding his son. Let me finish with the story. I'm going to try not to cry my way through it. <laughs> but it's so good. It was in my, one of my good buddies, Scott Keith's, his book, Being Dad. Um, Father is a picture of God's grace. I'd encourage you to pick it up if you're a dad here. Story goes like this. Um, he's telling the story of his friend, uh, Reverend Monroe. He says, one of my best friends is my sister. Uh, but when I was in the fourth grade, she was in the second grade, and I would say that sacrificial, self-giving love was not at the core of our relationship. Um, one afternoon after school, she and I were having a fight on the second floor landing of our house. <laughs> I punched her in the stomach. She opened her mouth to cry, and at that moment, without thinking, I grabbed a spray can sitting on a table. My sister got ready to cry. I stuck the can up to her face and sprayed DDT into her mouth. At that moment, my mother appeared in the room, as moms do. Um, she saw what had happened, grabbed my sister, ran downstairs out into the street, flagged down the first car that came along, got in and ran off to the hospital. I went into my room, <laughs> sat on my bed and waited. I waited for the end, which was not far away. After a half hour, the door opened. I heard steps on the stairs, steps that I knew belonged to my father. I knew that the apocalyptic second coming and final judgment was about to happen and that I fully deserved it. My father walked into the bedroom. Breathe. And stood at the door. He saw the guilt and despair, the sorrow and shame on my face. Then he did something that has permanently affected my life. He simply opened his arms. I burst into tears. I ran to him like a shot. And he folded his arms around me. I feel those arms at this moment. And I know whose arms they really were. They are the arms with nail-scarred hands. May God make Harbor City Church a place where men thrive in gospel masculinity, dying to themselves so that others might live. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, um, wow. How can I say thanks for the things that you've done for me? Things so undeserved that you came and to prove your love for me, the voices of a million angels couldn't express my gratitude. All that we have and ever hope to be, and we owe it all to you. Oh, Jesus, you've paid it all. All to you we owe. Lord, help us to live into that reality, to hear you calling us into this gospel party 
and to go with smiles on our faces, walking in knowing that waiting for us is our heavenly Father, waiting, willing, happy to bring us into the eternal embrace. We pray all of this for the, for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.